Welcome to Voices of Experience. Here's your host, Kate Delaney. I'm Kate Delaney with your Summer Voices of Experience, and it's our last time together through this medium anyway. Conversations include talk of travel abroad from a former NSA president and closer to home from NSA president John Molitor, but also what I call the basics that are easy to forget, from writing to hanging out with people outside the speaking industry to taking risks when you speak, and beware of brain overload with a ton of resources. What am I going to do with all this extra time? Work on my golf game? Uh, Forget that. Hmm, looks like I'm back to gig hunting. (laughs) Never mind. Enjoy this version of Voices of Experience. So excited to get a chance to catch up to Ruby Newell Legner, of course, the former president of the National Speakers Association, board member, and gosh, countless, countless people and teams and, oh gosh, I don't even animals that she has influenced. I'm serious. <laughs> she is all about it. You know, if you go to sevenstarservice.com and you look up Ruby, you get dizzy from looking at all the professional sports teams that she's worked with. It's incredibly impressive. And of course, combining her love for the NSA and what she was able to do as president, even before that, and then what she does with Seven Star Service, Ruby has logged a lot of miles. And of course, many speakers are hoping to do the same and walk in her shoes. And many are doing it right now and sometimes struggling with it because it can be difficult traveling. Hey, Ruby, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Happy to be here. You probably don't know the, maybe you do. Do you know the exact miles that you've logged your entire life through everything that you've done? You know, it's kind of like how many days I'm on the road every year. I don't add it up because it would just exhaust me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, right? it's a lot. Do you have one, it's probably so hard, but is there one favorite trip that really stands out to you as far as your speaking training career is concerned? Oh, my gosh. One that stands out. Well, probably the one that stands out the most for me is being invited to do training for Jumeirah over in Dubai. And that was the one that where it started my work over there and with the Seven Star Hotel, which was my namesake of my company. And that just started a whole revolution in my mind of what customer service could be. So I would say that probably is that that first trip. I was actually asked to go over to India to do training for GE. We teach presentation skills for them. And coming back, we stopped by Dubai, and they asked me to do some training. And, oh, my gosh, that just was a, a mind warp, one might say. I like that, a mind warp. But And Dubai is an area where there is a lot of business if you can tap into it. But it can be tricky to navigate if you don't know some of the customs and the culture, right? Very true. I've only almost gotten thrown in jail a couple of times. Um, <laughs> oh, should we talk about that? <laughs> Let's t- Tell us your story. We want to hear that story. Oh, my gosh. Um, this was my third trip, and I knew better, and it took 26 hours to get there, so 
client meets me at the hotel, and I get in the elevator, and a gentleman, um, Arab-dressed gentleman, gets in, and his wife get in, and I turn to him, and I look, and I see that he's got a teeny tiny little braided rope around his neck. Well, the trip before, I just found out that that means he's from Dubai because he has, you know, the, the braided rope represents the camel, pulling the camel across the desert, and so I kind of put my hand to point to it, and I see my clients out of the corner of my eye just go, no, but they weren't saying anything. It just was like that slow motion moment, and I wasn't going to touch him, and that's what they were afraid of, but I, I'm not supposed to speak to an Arab man. He's supposed to speak to me first, and I kind of just forgot where I was there for a minute, <laughs> Wow. And, um, and I realized, and so I said, I know what, oh, never mind. <laughs> oh, it was one of those almost an international incident, but um, I got a crusty from him, a crusty from his wife, and a long elevator ride for five more floors to get to where we were. <laughs> wow. So would you say that a good thing to do is try to find out everything you can about the customs and the culture? Because sometimes it's hard to dig that kind of stuff up. Oh, absolutely. You know, Kiss, Bow, and Shake Hands is one of my very favorite books. It's um, out of print, but you can sometimes find a back issue of it on Amazon. And it goes by country, and you can find out what to do and what not to do and what to be aware of. So it's always nice to tip up on those things. Of course, I already knew I wasn't supposed to do that. I just forgot. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. And then stateside, you've been to a lot of places, too. And, of course, travel now has become a little bit trickier in some ways with what's happening with the airlines. Even if you're going along pretty smooth, things happen where something can happen in another city. Have you ever had a situation where you had to jump in a car or re-rack or do something different to get to an engagement? Well, I was on the tarmac when the Fort Lauderdale shooter was apprehended, and we thought it was, actually, I wasn't on the tarmac yet. I was checking in, and um, it was about, I don't know, eight months ago or so, and when it happened, we thought it was all safe because they they got him, and then there was, I think, probably uh, some sound that somebody thought was a gunshot, so they evacuated the airport again, and I spent about six and a half hours out on the tarmac with me and two of 2,000 other people. So that wasn't really a reroute. It was kind of a delay. (laughs) I like that kind of a delay, and it's uh, sadly uh, for you. But then it all turned out okay in in the end. And I guess that's part of it is you seem very patient to me, having having had the pleasure of getting to know you. You seem like a patient person. Are you patient with this whole travel thing? I am, you know, especially being a customer service trainer. It's always more material. So the way you can look at it is like, wow, this is really a great opportunity to share some stories and watch and see how people handle things. Because I do so many trainings for the stadiums and arenas, that was an you know an educational day because I watched how they handled the emergencies and how they didn't handle the emergencies. So it was um, very enlightening. Yeah, for you when you with all the training that you've done with the professional teams across the board, and of course one of them was the Vancouver Olympics. That has to be one of the crown jewel moments where you right the olympics what was that like it was amazing two and a half years we worked on that project preparing everybody mm. for you know welcoming the world to vancouver and of course canadians are already so lovely and i absolutely love their personalities and they're so kind even to take it another level and you know enhance the customer service and the way they answered questions and they had their information it was really an honor what would you tell um, most people who are listening to this uh, a couple of quick tips about travel that maybe they can use? I, I, I bet you're a pretty decent packer because packing is tough for me. You know what? 
You might find it odd to know that I do check my luggage, but when you have seven hair products to get your hair to stand <laughs> up and stay in humid climates, that you know, I, I can go about two days in the little tiny bottles, but I can't carry on my all my hair product because it takes too much. So I'm one of those that does check my luggage. So I, I don't have those secrets, but I do pack. I have I take things that makes me comfortable. You know, I take my slippers, I take my my uh, sugar-free coffee flavoring, and I mean I take things that make me feel comfortable on the road so it isn't I'm not a, a light packer <laughs> those of you who are listening who have lifted my suitcase on all my chapter visits yeah that would be true <laughs> so so then there is something to that though because it makes you feel more comfortable so maybe it's worth it to take slippers or a pillow or whatever it is that you need so you can easily meld into whatever it is that you have to do especially if you travel a lot you bet and know what you like so for instance when I reserve my room for the hotels. I like two beds, one's for my suitcase. I also have, I always ask for close to but not next to the elevator so they don't put you, you know, three miles away. And if you get specific about what you want and put it in your profile, then usually with the status, because we stay in hotels all the time, they will honor that. Yeah. Did you ever think growing up that your life would be like this? Never in a moment. <laughs> Never. And I was very early on, I was quite sure I would be a swim coach the rest of my life. Did that for 20 years. And after developing the allergy to the pool air and doctors telling me I had to get out of that environment, I, I really thought that's what I was going to do the rest of my life. So it was pretty devastating. But who knew that that could be put to a new platform. If I can't coach on the pool deck, maybe I can coach from a stage. So it's been a wonderful journey and I've loved every minute of it. Yeah. So there's a lesson in that, right? That sometimes when you get this wicked curveball that is, it seems so tough at the time, it can really open up opportunity. It truly did for me. I sure, you know, embraced that opportunity to look at things in a new way. I'd love to tell you that I did it right, right away. No problem. I got something else. I can. I was a winder and a ambulance driver for about three years, and then all my friends got on me and said, "Ruby, come on, <laughs> shape up." <laughs> and then it was, oh wow, I guess there are some other options out there. So, who you just was have the to first? Get out of your own way. Yeah, that's true. You have to get out of your own way. Who was the first person that you saw speak at NSA? Wow, that's a great question. Mickey Williams. I was going through my certified pool operators class in Vail, Colorado, and this was probably, I want to say, 30 years ago. I bet it's at least 30 years ago. And I was still a full-time recreation facility manager and swim coach, and she did a program for the group who was attending the operators course and, and was just so nice. I so enjoyed the, the feelings that she she gave us, you know, in the motivation and also in the, the comfort in talking in front of a group. And I didn't leave there thinking I wanted to be a professional speaker, but I think she planted the seed where I saw something in my past that went, oh, I remember that. That was pretty cool. So to this day, I'm still grateful to her and, and was cheering her on when she got her CPAE. It's a very exciting time. So she got that honor. Ruby Newell-Legner, thank you so much. My pleasure, Kate. And you're doing a great job with VOE. Keep it up. Thank you. So we're here with Chris Clark Epstein, and she's a Cavett Award winner. Of course, everyone knows, former president of NSA and writing goddess. She is a, a change speaker, talks about change as well. And there's so many places we could take this, Chris, but 
is how many people are writing books, want to write books, what do I do with writing? It never changes, does it? No, it has a direct proportion to how many members there are in NSA. Years ago, I used to do a program for chapters called Do I Have to Have a Book to Be a Speaker? And there, there is, and the answer to that is no, you don't have to, but you probably are going to want to. Writing is a way of expanding your outreach into the people that you are going to serve, no matter what your subject, no matter what your audience is. And it also is a legacy thing. Our, our speeches are ephemeral, and we give them and they dissipate, but, but books and articles have a shelf life and they stay around. And the trick is to make sure that what you're producing is something that you're proud to have somebody read five, ten years from now because there is a shelf life involved. And so working on your skills as a writer is just as important as working on your skills as a speaker because speaking and writing are not the same thing. Do you have to be disciplined to be a good writer? I think you have to be disciplined to be a good anything. Um, and yes, yes, you do. And you have to get over the thought that just because you're a good speaker, you're going to be a good writer because they are not their compatible skills. They are not the same thing. So that myth of just record your speeches and have somebody transcribe them and lo and behold, you have a book is just that. It's a myth. You will have garbage is what you'll have because how we speak is very different than what goes down on a piece of paper. Now, I'm not saying that it's more formalized when it's written. I'm saying it's just different when it's written. What do you tell people who say, yeah, I have a book in me, but geez, I don't have the time. I know I'm going to write it. I, you know, I have, have the great American novel. You know, we hear all kinds of things. Is it get off your dime and start writing? Well, I have a, a mantra that I, when I teach writing in chapters and at NSA, the mantra is talking about writing is not writing. Only writing is writing. So it's, it's either do it or don't do it. Uh, you know, it's kind of the Yoda do or don't do, there's no try. It, you, you just have to put pen to paper in order to call yourself a writer. And quite frankly, if you don't do that, if you're not disciplined and you don't do the writing, the daily writing, whether it's some exercises or working on a project, then just stop calling yourself a writer because you're not. And any writer who's gotten successful will tell you that it's about putting your butt in the chair. You're a, you're a change expert as well. Mm -hmm. So what has changed in the book world? How do you move that forward? The whole publishing industry has gone through amazing trans transformation in the years that I've been studying this stuff. However, allow me to say that you don't have to worry about publishing if you don't have a manuscript. So the first step is get the manuscript. Then you can figure out, do I want to go to a traditional publisher and work through that? Do I want to self-publish? Do I want to have a, a paper 
book? Do I want to make it uh, hold it in your handbook? Am I creating an ebook? Am I selling it on Amazon? Am I it, how am I going to distribute it? All of those. What should the cover look like? How many pages should it be? Where do you get an ISBN number? Trust me, you are going to have to have the answers to all those questions, but you don't need it now because if you don't have a manuscript. There's no reason to spend any time talking about those things. So writing is first. Talking about writing, talking about publishing, talking about cover design, talking about font style, talking about layout is not writing. Only writing is writing. Yeah, that's the cart before the horse, right? Yes, exactly. And I feel so passionately about this that this is a craft just as you didn't you you didn't get the fee you get today for the first speech that you ever gave. You you did things and you practiced in, in arenas and you got good so that you were willing or you were ready to command the fee that you're getting today. And it's continuous improvement. And writing is, is the same way. So if you write every day for 15 minutes, short exercises using one of the many resources that you can get for writing prompts, if you do that every day, and you do that every day for three months, by the end of three months, what you write will be better than what you wrote the first time that you sat down. Most gratifying thing about your career up to this point? One one of the most gratifying thing was, and and this really tells you how long I've been doing this, and on VOE you can't see my gray hair, but trust me, it's there. Uh, One of the most gratifying thing was finding my name and my book title in the card catalog at the Marathon County Library back in the days where there were file drawers with cards in it and you flip through it and I got to flip through and see mine and I went to take go look at my book on the shelf and it wasn't there and I talked to one of the librarians and she said oh we can't keep your book in stock I said how many more copies would you like to have I'd be glad to donate them but it I, I was a child of libraries and to, to have a book with my name as the author in the library was pretty magical for me. Pretty cool. Yeah. CCE. Thank you. What a thrill. Thank you. Great. Can I give a homework assignment before we go? You can. Okay. Uh, one of the things that will make you a better writer is reading good writing. So although reading about writing is not writing, only writing is writing, reading good fiction will help you when you get to the writing point. So here's a recommendation. There is a mystery book called Off the Grid, written by P.J. Tracy. P.J. Tracy is a mother and daughter writing team, and they write mystery novels set in Minnesota and northern Wisconsin, one of the reasons that I like them. And my assignment is for you to get the book off the grid, and I want you to read chapter number six. When I teach writing, I read that chapter. It's one of the best descriptive writing I have ever run across, and it's a ripping good story, too. Thank you. You're welcome. Time for the monthly oops moment when speakers reveal, well, when things didn't go quite as planned. Hi, this is John Register, and here is my oops moment. <laughs> my, one of my first gigs I did for, you know, pretty good fee, uh, and I was speaking for a pharmaceutical company. Small room, about 12 individuals. All these are kind of rock star presenters or, or, or sales people. And I came in there, um, and I didn't feel like I connected with any one of them. I thought it was a total, total fail. For the next 10 years, 
I defined what not to do by that one experience. And then 10 years later, the conference organizer, the conference plan that actually hired me to come into the event, called me back. She had transferred to another company, uh, and she asked me to come and do the same program <laughs> for uh, that I did uh, 10 years earlier. So when she called me up, I actually thought she was asking for her money back. Uh, and the, but uh, she didn't, and so I did the same program. So I got off the nerve to ask her what was going on, and she said people were just processing what you were saying. So from that, and I tell all of you, just impact your audience and don't worry about how it's, it's going forward because people process the information differently. Just be prepared. Hello, this is Nikki Nanos here, and this was my first oops moment, probably the first of many to come. <laughs> I was MC this past fall at a conference, and of course, as MC, you walk off stage, you turn your mic off, you come back on, and a few minutes later, you turn it back on. Well, somewhere in the middle of the conference, as I came back on stage, I had forgotten to turn my mic on. As I started to speak, I realized it. So I look down, I switch it on, and I say to the audience, well, it sure helps if you turn your mic on, doesn't it? Well, that's what happens when you're single. You have to turn yourself on. <laughs> the whole audience just went dead silent. And I'm looking out at these faces because I didn't even realize what I said. And all of a sudden, it hit me as I'm looking around the room, I figured out who all the single people were because they were snickering under their breasts and turning 20 shades of red. So that was my very first oops moment. Hey, I'm Terry Rich, the idea and lottery dude. Well, my oops moment came during a speech in London, England. It was about the same time I was finishing the book, Dare to Dream, Dare to Act. And my main takeaway message was to use the letter COT in the email subject line when sending new ideas to coworkers. COT stands for consider or toss, I told the audience, and doing this small thing works well to get ideas off your chest and out to many in a non-threatening way. Well, after the speech, the MC whispered to me that I might want to know England's slang terms. You see, toss in England means male self-pleasure. Yep, I immediately called my book publisher and changed the presentation to say, COT now means consider or throw away. Oops. It's Jill's Juicy Bites, the place to get communication strategies to grow your business. Here's Jill Schiffelbein. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the final episode of Jill's Juicy Bites. I know if you want to take a minute and get a tissue, I understand. I'm kind of sad, too, because it has been my honor and joy to bring you communication strategies for using technology to grow your business every month here on Voices of Experience. But alas, the season is coming to an end. New people will take over and bring you super valuable content. So what I'm going to leave you with for my last Juicy Bite is actually a summary of everything we've talked about and learned together over the course of this VOE season. If you have not already, please make valuable use of the resource site. I created it just for you guys. If you go to bit.ly forward slash Jill's Juicy Bites, B-Y-T-E-S, you can get all of the companion resources that go along with each and every episode. And you know what? If you missed one, you're about to get a full rundown of everything we covered, well, in snapshot form, of technology and strategy and goodness to grow your speaking business. And again, 
bit.ly forward slash Jill's Juicy Bites, and you can get all the resources. So for this last episode, let's take a deep breath, drum roll please, and here we go. If you've been listening this whole season, we started off in September, and in September, we talked about live streaming. I mean, live streaming, it was hot then, it's still hot now, and I gave you not only tools and strategies for screen capture and video capture, but also ways that you can start thinking about putting the live streams beyond Facebook, beyond YouTube, beyond whatever platform you are using. I gave you a very clear and concrete way that you can repurpose every single video you create, every single stream you do on your website that will make it more searchable. That information on the companion site. Let's move on to October where we dove into one of my favorite geeky topics, SEO, search engine optimization. If you remember that episode, I walked you through how search engines started categorizing information from the very early days. Let's think about libraries and Dewey Decimal System people and then how it goes into voice recognition search now and what that means for your business and your keyword strategy on your websites and with your content. Good stuff again on that companion site. Moving into November, my personal favorite month of the year because somebody, yours truly, was born then, we talked about social media. And one of the things that I always talk about in every program I give is the idea that one cannot not communicate. And this is so key because unless you are pretty darn famous and you are super optimized, with all of your sites and content, whenever people search for your name, more likely than not, social media sites are going to show up on that first page of Google. They are part of your digital footprint. So if you have social media presence and you aren't posting with frequency, that is communicating to people who are looking for you and not something very good. So you need to be consistent and you need to know which sites you need to be on basically not to look stupid. I suggested LinkedIn is one of them, but you have to listen to the rest of that episode to find out. We wrapped up the year 2016 in December talking about, oh, SEO is great for geeks, but analytics, damn, data is sexy and I love it. So data is how you listen to your audience when they can't speak to you directly. But so many speakers never take the time to dive into their website analytics, their content analytics, their video analytics, and really find out what is driving traffic to your site and then creating content towards that and then capitalizing on those trends. You got to listen to your audience when they can't speak to you and how they're doing that is with their clicks and interactions with all of your content online. We started out a new year in January and February with something that I wanted to do for you, which is simplify, simplify the world of online advertising. In particular, we dove deep into Facebook advertising and retargeting pixels, what those actually mean, how you implement them, and what benefits they can bring to your business. Hint, you can set up a pixel so that anyone who ever visits your website, you can target them and only them with a Facebook ad. Talk about bang for your buck. I say that's efficiency. March, we moved on to repurposing. And I gave you a strategy where you could take a single interview, a single interview that you've been featured on, and how you can turn that one interview into 25 pieces or more of content that you can distribute all over your networks. Wow. 
talk about fun. And then April, we moved into media appearances. So kind of going off of March's repurposing, most of us do podcasts, media appearances, guest appearances, blog posts, guest features, whatever, but yet we're not keeping track of those. So in April, I give you a spreadsheet that you can use to keep track of every media appearance, every interview appearance, every bonus article that you contribute to so you can leverage those into the future and repurpose them with tools on social media, something like Hootsuite, something like Me Edgar, whatever tool you are using, you can use a spreadsheet to help you get your content out there and maximize the heck out of it. And then in May, we talked about the purpose of creating content to answer questions. I mean, we hinted at that earlier in the fall with the SEO and with social media and the analytics, but really this is when I gave you a very simple strategy that you can use to mass produce large qualities and quantities of content that are answering questions that your audience is asking. And in an easy way, that's not going to have you sitting down, pounding your head on the keyboard because you just have writer's block. None of that with this strategy, and you get that in May. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it has come time for me to sign off of Jill's Juicy Bites. Again, it's been an honor and pleasure to have this segment. I'm so grateful to Kate and the VOE team for asking me to come on board. One favor I have of you, if you learned something on Jill's Juicy Bites this year, let's talk about it. Tweet me or Facebook me or Instagram me or whatever you want to do at Dynamic Jill. Any of those channels would love to hear what your favorite segment was. Again, thanks for letting me be a part of your business this year. Can't wait to see you all at Influence. Let's check in with the National Speakers Association President, John Molidor, for our monthly conversation. I can't believe it, but here we are for the final conversation with the president of the National Speakers Association, Dr. John Molitor. John, how did we get here? Can you believe it? It's scary how fast this has gone by. And again, huge, huge thanks and kudos to you for the phenomenal job that you've done on VOA. I love, in fact, the conversational tone that we've set. Love the fact that you were able to bring in people from outside of speaking to help us think about what are what other areas are out there that we need to be using uh, in our presentation. So thank you so much for doing that. Thank you for for choosing me. I was very happy to uh, to serve in your role. We talked about this just briefly. I mentioned it in the last VOE that you've gotten to travel around to these different chapters and to other other places as well as the uh, president of the National Speakers Association. So you've been doing the airport thing. Not that you haven't done that before in your life, but probably a lot more. What's it been like all the the travel? Um, One of the things that is so, so remarkable about NSA is the incredible warmth and hospitality of the individuals and the individual chapters. I have felt so welcomed, and you're so well taken care of, and it's just just been a blast. So uh, you show up, somebody picks you up, you get to talk with them on the way back to, you know, to the hotel, and then, then you usually get to have dinner with the board, you hear the issues and concerns. And so it's been great because then through this kind of the grassroots efforts, then I can bring that forward to the board. These things can be talked about and trying to break down a lot of the us, them 
mm-hmm. uh, sense that sometimes is out there. It's like, you know, the board is volunteers just like everybody else, and we're trying to do our best uh, based on the information we have. So getting information from the chapters has been wonderful because you hear exactly what their concerns are. And there are concerns out there, and we need to address them. But in terms of the... Uh, felt always a strong sense of honoring the office of the president. And so I have been very honored and um, humbled uh, by the treatment that's, that's been out there. It's been great. And outside of the chapters representing the NSA, I bet you've had some interesting experiences as as well. Tell us about some of those, because uh, even internationally, you've made a uh, a few trips to some other countries. Has that been pretty interesting? That has been great. So same thing. It's it's been fascinating to visit other uh, global associations to see how they run their meetings, to see how they approach things. And I worry sometimes that sometimes we think, oh, the U.S. way is the only way. Well, not at all. And there's so much going on out there in the world. It's been great to learn about other associations and to see how they do their meetings and how they honor each other. And it's been great. So I've been honored also to be able to represent the NSA U.S. in those travels. So, again, same thing, been treated exceptionally well. People are wonderful, and you realize that the speaking as a profession is so unique, and yet it does cut across global lines. Uh, Same issues, same problems, uh, same joys, uh, same highs, if you will, uh, even internationally. So it's been a blast. Do you think there's going to be more opportunities for uh, our members to speak internationally? Do you think that those, those doors aren't closing down, that maybe they're opening up more? I think so. One of the concerns is that with the immigration concerns is can people come and visit us? Can we visit other countries? And so that's been raised at the last two uh, global association meetings. It's sort of like, are we going to be welcome? Can we come to the U.S.? And I think then probably it'll be, can the U.S. go somewhere else? Now, I think that's still happening, but there's a much greater awareness given these times right now. But I think I think since our audiences are changing so much and the mix of our audience is changing, probably because of the Internet, access to information, I think there will be more opportunities for people to speak internationally. And it means that we also have to figure out how do you do that? Because although their brains may be the same in terms of how they process information, you also have a lot of cultural uh, situations. You have standard ways of, of presenting that may work in some countries and not in others. So it's a fascinating area that one can learn, and then I think they can become incredibly effective internationally. Yeah. So as I mentioned at the top, this is it. This is our last Voices of Experience. It's your chance to, to um, and you have, give a shout-out to whoever you'd like to, to give a shout-out to and, and some final thoughts and talking about what it's been like as the uh, president of the National Speakers Association. I'll say this. I feel like since you've been doing this, Dr. John, there's there and, and maybe this is because of the approach, too, there, there's been a lot of conversation. There's a, a lot of sharing of ideas. There's a lot of, um, I think, people trying to help each other in the organization. I'm sure it's always been like that, but it feels like it's in the, at a higher frequency to me. Do you, do you feel that way? 
Yeah, I do. And I think in approaching this, um, I approached it with a lot of thought. And, you know, as we started this, we knew as as president, you know that you don't have a theme, but I wanted concepts. I wanted those concepts of big brains, big hearts, big ideas, bigger business to frame what we're going to do during this year of service. And that meant, as you pointed out, the OE or the speaker mag, uh, how we do the actual designing of the different conventions and conferences and labs. So everything was kind of aimed at, at that concept. And then underlying all that was asking for people's help. And if we are to be a profession, then we have to move in that direction. And that means in our behavior, in how we interact with the public, and how we interact with speakers bureaus, and in, in how we do with meeting planners. It's really moving us to say, if we are to be a profession, then we need to behave as a profession. And so it's been very rewarding to see people talk about that, as well as to then behave more in the professional manner. I think we still have sometimes the club mentality, and that, but that's our roots, too. We started there, and so we have to keep the sense of that closeness that may come with a club, but we also can move in the direction to say, how are we as professionals, and how do we behave in that way? And that's been fun to see people uh, think about that and then take it into their actual business and then behavior, because that's ultimately where all change comes about is how we behave and how we interact with one another. So that's been fun to see, see people do that. Dr. John Molitor, president of the National Speakers Association. Thank you. What an honor to serve as your chair of VOE. Thank you, Kate. Just have loved doing this and working with you. Thank you so, so much. We're here with Melinda Marcus, and she's all about influence. She talks about influence, and it is her business. Boy, it is her business. She is the guru of what I think is an incredible new way to look at influence. So let's first talk about influence and what it means to you. Well, for me, it's all about what you can do to present yourself and your ideas in a way that people can best get it. Because what happens is often we have a lot to offer as speakers, but the way we communicate it, uh, folks can't realize that because we sound like the other 20 people they just talked to, especially if somebody just says, oh, I'm a speaker, or I'm a motivational speaker, or I'm a business speaker. It's too generic for people to relate to that. They can't visualize something that means something as a value to them. So the key is presenting yourself and your ideas in a way that they can best get it and give you consideration. You say there's three pieces or components to influence, to successfully influence uh, people and outcomes. What are the three pieces? So I've narrowed it down to those three that I think are the most influential. That's what's been tested and proven to move people from a no or maybe to a yes in psychology, so persuasive psychology. The other is reading nonverbals. That's not only body language, but that's the body language of the voice. Often our first contact is by phone. So understanding that somebody pausing, somebody having a change in their pitch or their pacing 
is actually telling you about how they're feeling and maybe how they're thinking. So it's nonverbals. And the third piece is messaging. It's which words for which people and how you say something where the message has impact that is very sticky and the people can remember that way after they see you. Yeah. Give us an example of that. So another thing that you and I talked about that I thought was so powerful is we always get asked the question, and I know people are going to get big grins when they hear this, what do you speak about? First of all, my mother, ending with a preposition, but what do you speak about? That's what people ask. So when you're asked that question, I, I think that there's the speakers grapple for the line. I need the line. I need the elevator pitch. I need the way to say it. But you say that's not really the right way to approach it. Well, normally what's been sold is that there's an elevator speech. And as speakers, we kind of like that. We like to speak, right? I don't really believe that's influential. I think what's much more influential is an elevator conversation. So that means having one line that is so compelling, the other person can't resist to not ask you, tell me more or tell me about that. Uh, so I'll give you an example out of my situation. I used to always tell people that I show executives how to influence decisions. And in fact, I've helped people increase their revenues by $250 million by helping them influence decisions. And I would usually get, oh, tell me about that. I'd get that kind of response, which is not bad. But Tom Winninger came to our chapter and spoke, and he said that when he tells people what he does, he always adds in one piece on what they have to lose if they don't use you. So I thought, wow, that's interesting. And right after he spoke, someone came up to me from our chapter who I had not met before and introduced herself. And she said, what do you do? And I say, I show executives how to influence decisions before they lose a big opportunity. Her response was not, tell me more, or what is that, or how do you do it? Her response was, give me your card. I know somebody who needs you. And not only was that her response, but the next five people I talked to, which were not other speakers, which were people who I met at uh, cocktail parties or at business meetings who didn't know me, the response I most likely would get from them is, give me your card, either I need you or I know somebody who needs you. That's how I knew that I now had a much better much more influential line. So give me what you say when people say, what do you speak on? So people will ask me and I will say, I teach people how to get heard. I'll show you how to get heard. Three million people listen to me. I can do that for you. Okay, so I think that's terrific and impressive. And also for speakers, we all want to be heard. We all want to be carried in the media. But I want you to try one thing. Now say, I show people how to get heard so that they're not invisible. And it's much more powerful because if you don't use me, then what do you lose out on? Perfect. So try that out, and you'll start finessing it each time. Maybe those aren't the exact words. Maybe there's a little finesse to it. But you'll know when it's right because you'll start getting a comment like, may I have your card because I need you. That's brilliant. What what uh, happens with influence? You, you say that you can influence somebody before you even meet them. You know, we, as speakers, we have appointments. People call us up. They want to talk to us on the phone. They want to uh, talk to us Skype, Zoom, whatever it might be. What can we do to set the table for success before we actually meet the person or the potential client or maybe the meeting planner? One of the things that people aren't aware of that actually before they meet you is the time where they're most influenced. 
because what you can do is predispose them to being uh, very interested in what you have to offer or maybe already sold on what you have to offer. So then when you're in the meeting, it's a whole different meeting because they're already wanting to work with you. So what I think you have to do is you have to research what their pain point is, what their problem is, what their current challenge is. Maybe if they don't have something published on that or you can't find it out, you can look industry-wise at what's happening and see if you see an opportunity that maybe they haven't thought about yet that they're not taking advantage of. And you write them a little note that that this part is not very original. I'm sure everybody listening to this has heard, make it about them, not about you. But you have an observation and a suggestion of how they could take advantage of that or how they may address a problem. And you might have one line on how you've done that for other people, perhaps, and then end it. But you're giving them something that should be thought-provoking. And that, if you make them think and reflect, that will go way in your favor and they'll want to meet with you. Yeah, that's great. Good stuff. Thank you so much, Melinda. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Time for another one-minute power thought with Dave Lieber on writing and creativity. This time around, we're talking about the muse. The muse, M-U-S-E, the subconscious, um, the part of you that's tapped, that has to be tapped because it's locked inside of you. And Just because you have to sit down and write a great speech or write a training session or write a story doesn't mean that you're automatically going to create art, which is what our goal is. Whenever we sit down to do something, we want to create art. So you literally have to untap your muse. You have to let it out. You have to stimulate it. You have to use... I don't know, people use wine, they use uh, lights, they use a walk in the park, they smoke a cigarette, uh, they have candles. My per- personal preference is, is, is like spa music. Uh, quiet, background, no verbal. It makes me think creatively and it helps me start to get away from that 9 to 5 office desk feeling. That's funny, I have a muse too, Dave. Right. Mine is I sit in a certain place in my office and I listen to jazz. I've taken it on the road, I have to have the jazz, it totally works every single time. So find your muse. Time to take it out of the park on Voices of Experience. Good things come in threes. Here are three different speakers on finding your niche, the man brand, and recalculating. We're here with Amy Castro, CSP, who um, she and I were talking about something that all of us talk about. What's your niche? How do you discover where you can leverage what you've done in the past and what that right angle is for you, if you will, or, or the word that I just used? What's your niche? So, Amy, for you... How did you discover, first of all, what your background was, how you could leverage it? How did you discover what your niche was? Well, while I was in the Air Force, I did public relations. So communication was a big part of of my job. But I kind of discovered along the way that doing journalistic communication and that type of thing was not exactly what I really wanted to do. In order to make it past captain in the military, you have to get a master's degree. So the Air Force sent me to graduate school. And I went through a program of communication in human communication theory. And a huge, I mean, that was like a huge light bulb moment for me that this is the thing that most people are missing is how do I get along and get things done and communicating with other people. So when I got out, I knew that that's what I wanted to do was to find some way of doing business to share those skills so that other people could get along and get things done. For people that are listening and and they can be in any point in their business, let's face let's face it, whether they just jumped into it and they're taking off like gangbusters and they haven't really figured out that road, how do you how do you figure this all out? How do you figure out how you pull this all together to to make it into something that's malleable, I'll call it? 
I would think, you know, if people kind of look at three, in my family, we have a, we have a thing called the triad and the triad is my husband, myself, and my daughter. And through those three things, we can do anything. And so my life kind of, the things that I do tend to revolve around triads and triangles. And so when I look at business and the, and the concept of niche, you've got a, you've got a triad, right? It's you. So it's your expertise, your experience, your passion, what it is that you want to communicate. And then you've got your people, your audience. And that, you know, for some people, it might be C-suite. For me, it's frontline managers, frontline employees, and mid-level management. I don't do a lot with C-suite. And then it's the client, because I think of the client and the audience is two completely different things. So are you, do you have background in government? Maybe that's where you should go because you can speak the, speak the lingo. Is it in healthcare? Uh, because I find, at least in my 22 years of being in business, that once you get into a client base, the word spreads and you can leverage your experience. Oh, I was a trainer at Texas Children's Hospital, so I can do that for you, Hospital A, Hospital B, and so on. So if you can kind of work on figuring out what are those three things, what, you know, what is your passion, who do you love to speak to and share your wisdom with, and then what are the clients that relate to you and you can relate to them, you're going to have a successful business. All right, I'm here with my pal, Dan Griffin, A Man's Way Through Relationships, Learning to Love and Be Loved. That's his latest book or one of his latest books. And it's interesting because as speakers, we go through a lot of different transitions trying to find our brand, our road, what it is, what our passion is. So, Dan, welcome. And I I know when I met you, we were talking about a lot of different things. Tell us how you got to where you are now and really springboarded into speaking. Sure. So thanks a lot first for having me on. It's a real honor. There's a lot of amazing speakers, so to, for you to take the time, I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, you know, I just, I've always, I come alive when I speak, probably like a lot of us. And I was working in the addictions and mental health field and really found that I had some fairly unique things to say. But as I was speaking more and more to trainers, to professionals, the feedback I was getting was, this seems bigger than addiction and recovery. And so when I met you in New York uh, about a year and a half ago, I was in that place of trying to figure out, okay, I'm doing really well in this, this lane, right, of around addiction, recovery, mental health, and looking at that. Is there an opportunity to kind of step beyond that. And I've been in the process of doing that. And it's been really, really well received. It's, it's, it's interesting. I had three publishers turn me down for this book because no man's going to buy a book about relationships. And yet men and women are very interested, very interested. So when, um, with men and women being interested, who are the people that you pitch to get speeches? Well, so it's very... That's an interesting one, right? So a lot of the talks still for my business are primarily in the addictions and mental health field. That That's still the biggest part of our business. We train professionals. We train like psychologists, social workers, all around this model that we've developed for working more effectively with men. Now what's happening is it's like relationship experts, right? There's a lot of relationships, relationship experts out there. A lot of them tend to be women. A lot of them tend to be talking to women. And so that's what's happening is I'm broadening that conversation. They're having me come on and I'll talk to them um, on their podcast or on their radio show. Um, But a lot of the speaking gigs are are really still in that space of addiction and mental health. And when you 
prepare and you're speaking, how do you make it, how do you break it down? How do you break a talk down where it makes sense and resonates with the audience in really a tough field? It is a tough field, um, but it's it's very, the people that are in the addictions and mental health field, they're not in it for the money. They're in it for the love, for the making a difference. Many of them have been down that path. They're in recovery or they know somebody close to them. So I really keep that in mind. That's what I'm taking into the talks is it's like, what's going to resonate? How many of these folks know a man and have watched that man struggle and not be able to get into recovery or have been have that man in recovery and struggle while he's in recovery? And so um, I use my own personal experience. Um, and then I use some pretty provocative and challenging ideas about how we're currently working with men and how we understand particularly men's addiction and men's trauma. Wow, and so how how do we work with men? What give us a couple <laughs> couple of ways that we work with men you can work better more effectively with men. Sure, the classic is with men there's always been this thing of like accountability. We have got to break them down, right? Their their ego is just so big. They're coming in cocky, they're coming in this way. We just got to break them down. What I found was while that persona comes in it's really a lot different, very, very, um, not too far beneath the surface, a, a lot of fear, a lot of insecurity, a lot of shame, and a lot of trauma. So what I train professionals on is to understand that I talk about this concept of the man rules, right? All these ideas we have as men. Be strong. Don't be weak. Don't be vulnerable. Don't ask for help. Don't share your feelings, And then we put them in a clinical environment. We put them in a therapeutic environment. And what are we asking them to do? Admit that you're weak. Ask for help. Be vulnerable. Share your feelings. We're asking them to do the exact opposite. So what I say is, why don't we actually look at the overall paradigm and change that? And finally, we tracked down National Speakers Association board member Karen Jacobson. She's known as the GPS girl, gal, whatever, guru, whatever you want to call her, because I think you could apply all of those, the three Gs. Recalculating is the name of the game. And speakers are always, it seems, recalculating. And I know we have all kinds of members, whether they're new and just jumped into the game, whether this is a second career, whether they are killing it, but they know that they have to stay in front of trends and they're constantly recalculating. So who better to talk to about it than uh, the woman who coined the phrase? How are you, Karen? Um, Well, I'm here with you, so I must have reached my destination. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. I love that answer. So recalculating obviously is different for the different levels I mentioned. Absolutely. So let's say you're somebody who jumped into this where it's a second career, but you you were killing it as a trainer, you spoke a lot, and you realized, oh, my passion is I just want to be a keynote speaker, and I'm really good at it. But you've got to recalculate because it's not the same as doing it for a corporation. Absolutely. So recalculating is about navigating change and working out how to uh, take some steps to get yourself back on track. Sometimes we are recalculating in small ways all day, every day, in our businesses, in our offices, in our travel schedule. Something doesn't go as planned, and it can send us down that very unproductive, negative mindset kind of road. And I really believe the ability, building that ability to bounce back 
from things not going the way you want them to go more and more quickly is something we can actually get better at. It's a skill we can improve. And I think certainly in this world of disruption and absolute transition we keep on dealing with at a faster and faster rate, the people who can keep themselves emotionally even and keep themselves uh, getting back to where they want to be headed and clarifying their destination quickly on a daily basis are the people who can really build momentum. So, but how do you do that? What are what are some techniques or ways to do that? Well, let me tell you, Kate. <laughs> uh, well, th- one of the things that I teach is the five directions for recalculating. So I'll just whip through those so that you have those as an overview. But really, the number one piece is to notice, to notice when you're off route. And similarly to when you're in a car and you take a wrong turn, uh, in a few quick steps, usually, you are redirected back toward your your destination. But in life or in, in our business life, we might take a wrong turn. We might go down a, an, a road we didn't expect. We might be chasing a shiny, bright object we hear about from somebody else. Look, how many times does it happen? You'll have a conversation with a speaker buddy and they're, you know, they've created this new program or uh, this new aspect of their business and they're all super excited about it. But this particular person that you're talking to is like a machine in their ability to, to put out material and you're not quite wired the same way. But we, we get distracted. So I know I do. And I see it with a lot of my speaker buddies. We get distracted super easily. So when that happens, it isn't until you notice that you are off route, until you notice that you are um, not where you want to be and that things aren't going the way you want to go. So that's really step one, is to be willing to admit that you are lost and to accept that. This can be extremely difficult for people with egos, Because we don't want to admit that we took a wrong turn. We don't want to admit it to ourselves, and we certainly don't want other people to see that. But to be able to notice more quickly sets us up to be able to take uh, some next steps. Okay, so when you say uh, it it sets us up to take next steps, what's the next step? Let's say I I recalculate, and I do feel like I have my head wrapped around this, and you, you you make a great point about speakers. It does happen. You get excited for your friends, and they want you to create the same online programs or do whatever it is, but you're in the middle of writing your book that you've been writing for 10 years, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and if you get the book out, then you can sell it in the back of the room. And then maybe create the program. (laughs) Right, and then maybe create the program. And I know all of you can relate to this no matter what level you are, by the way. I don't care if somebody's making a million dollars or they're making you know barely a living because they've jumped into it and they're trying to swim and figure their way out and and navigate the, the what it's like to be a speaker on many many different levels and you have speakers and facilitators and trainers and and it's different for every single person so so take it from there where do you go when we are so we've noticed that we're off route that doesn't mean we've only just gone off route. That could mean we've been off route for years or months, or but a long period of time. But it's only in that moment when we notice we can do something about it. Our next step is to be willing to change direction. Now, being willing, I know to be the most challenging aspect of recalculating. And if you've ever had anything to do with toddlers or small children and you've tried to make them do something that they do not want to do it goes terribly you can't make them 
I don't believe adults are very different. You cannot make somebody do something they do not want to do, and it's the same with ourselves. You know, so we really have to be willing. I think there's a humility to this particular step. Okay, we've noticed things aren't going right. We can still stick our head in the sand when we notice. But to actually be willing to change direction or be willing to take different actions to the ones we were taking before, that's where it starts to get uh, more interesting and more productive, I think. Mm. And, and for different people, probably different timelines. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, after we've been willing to do things differently... I recommend clarifying your destination. So really clarifying where you're headed to because you may have been on your way uh, to a specific goal or outcome. You get sidetracked. So you notice you're off route. You're now willing to do things differently, but all, all kinds of new information may have come to light during this period of time. And, uh, you know, we could we can point to technology. We can point to industry trends. That new information is extremely important in uh, in giving us uh, where we want to be headed next and really informing our new direction. So we then go, okay, well, where is it I was headed? What outcome was I after in this aspect of my speaking business? Oh, that's completely irrelevant now because we don't use fax machines or um, I don't want to have printed brochures or whatever other examples are more current. I ne- it doesn't mean I'm not getting my message out. It's just I'm going to change the way I'm going to do that and, and create a new new material of some, some description. Sometimes that new information that comes to light makes the destination you were headed to completely irrelevant and you want to clarify it, change it. Sometimes you're still headed to the same place and you're just on a detour. Here's Kate Delaney with If You Want to Get Heard. Well, this is it. Our last chance to try and get an interview with President-elect Brian Walter. Our luck's been bad. We've experienced bad microphones, cat allergies, fire alarms, barking dogs, bagpipes, Novocaine, and Siri gone rogue. It's always been one thing or another preventing us from talking to him, and we're just about out of time. Since our final VOE deadline is less than, well, 20 minutes away, in desperation, I've invited Brian to come record live at my house here in Richardson, Texas. I expect him at any time to show up and then perhaps we can have an interview if not i'll just try to do a longer closing commentary about hey it's brian walter can we still record live did i make it in time yes you did great let's do it sure let me just open the door Ugh. wait that's weird what's weird the door is stuck No, really. We've been doing a remodel, and I think the wood in our new door swelled up with the July heat. Pull harder! I am, but if we can't open this door, then I guess we'll have to cancel your... No way! Not again! It's fine. Just step back. I'm prepared for this. Well, okay. I'm not sure... So, shall we do the interview? Okay, sure. Just sit down over here. Yeah, sorry about the door. Uh, you can charge that to President John Mueller. I'll worry about that later. Okay, finally you're here, Brian. I know you've been raring to share with us a key tip about speaking success. So, after ten months of waiting, what is it? Huh? Wow. At last, uh, that tip is, uh, it's, uh, um... Brian? I forgot. 
You've got to be kidding. You cut through my door? I can't believe... No, wait, wait, wait. I, I remember, I remember. It, it's creating and using a single-sentence summary. Single-sentence summary? Exactly. When we're talking to normal people, civilians, most of us use some sort of an elevator speech or elevator pitch. And our problem with that is we monologue way too much. We drown the person in words so much that they don't get the snappy core concept of what we're about. In journalism, they call that burying the lead. Okay, let's back up a bit. You say when talking to civilians, what do you mean civilians? As speakers, we're not constantly selling to prospects, but we are constantly talking to professional people. People who might possibly turn into prospects, but regardless, people of influence. So, developing our personal brand is crucial. Anytime someone is talking to us and asks the question, so what do you do, that's an opportunity for brand building, but not necessarily selling. Now, I say we're talking to civilians when we're in front of someone who is interested in us but isn't perceiving themselves as a prospective buyer, at least not yet. They're a normal person, a civilian, not a prospect who is expecting you to pitch them. So we don't. Okay, if a civilian isn't a prospect, then what is our goal when talking to them? Ah, now that is the question so many speakers don't take advantage of. Now, Kate, when we're interacting with normal people on a plane or at a party or your kid's soccer game, there comes that moment when the person you're talking to asks a risky, open-ended question. What do you do? Why do you say risky? Because... Until then, you've likely been talking about safe subjects, you know, the weather, the sports, the lame airline food, or something like that. But when they shift, and when they ask you, what do you do, they know deep down it could go bad. You could turn into an Amway salesperson, you could be boring, or you could go on and on and on about what you do, and no one likes that. Okay, I see how it can be a risky question. So, as a speaker, what is our goal when someone in an informal situation asks us that question? We have three goals, actually, I believe. The first goal is simply be interesting. Why did they ask us, what do we do? Because they found us more interesting than what they were expecting when they first started talking to us. So the goal is first to keep being interesting, to justify that person's decision to ask us the more open-ended question. And the second goal is to build our brand. And by that I mean to plant a seed of our style and value proposition into their head. The more people in the world who have a sense of our brand, the better it is for us. Well, provided, you know, it's a good brand. And our third goal, and this is key, is to possibly initiate a test conversation to qualify them as a prospect. Perhaps they could be someone who would want to hire us sometime or have influence in their company or their organization with someone who could hire us. So how do we do that? We do that with a setup and then a single sentence summary. Now, a setup can be, you know, I'm a speaker and author, I'm a consultant and speaker, I speak at corporate meetings, something like that, and then you stop. Why stop? Because the goal is to ultimately say what you do in such a way that people want you to keep talking. Now, if you launch into a 30-second or more answer to their first question, they're going to regret asking it. They're going to want to secretly flee from you. But if you give them this super short leading response... They will be curious. Why curious? At NSA, Kate, we sometimes forget how exotic what we do is. 
Now, saying you're a speaker or an author and speaker or a consultant and speaker is pretty high on the uniqueness scale. But more importantly, speaking and writing implies a topic. It implies an area of expertise. And by not saying it right off the bat, the person you're talking to is going to feel compelled to ask you. It's catnip for conversations. Catnip for conversations? Yes, really. Think about it. You can't say you're a speaker, author, and not get a follow-on question. They will pause for a moment and process what you just said about being a speaker author, and then they will 99.999% of the time ask you what you speak and or write about. And that's where the single sentence summary comes in? Absolutely. And this is where so many speakers go wrong. They try and share the whole pie of what they can do or what they're experts at. And that comes across as you think you are literally a know-it-all in some subject, or you go so generic in describing your whole expertise, the whole pie, that there's nothing interesting about it. They don't want you to keep talking. Now, the secret is not to talk about the whole pie, but about the best slice. Give us an example. Here's a simple one. Let's imagine you're an expert on leadership, you and 500 other speakers. So in this conversation with a person, a civilian next to you in first class or wherever, you say you're a speaker and author, and they say, oh, really, what about? Now, what comes out of your mouth next is a single sentence summary. If you say, I'm an expert on leadership, snoozer. I mean, what's interesting about that? Does it make the person you're talking to want to know more? No. Instead, if your single sentence summary is, I speak about leadership projection, or I speak about leadership projection of goals, then what happens? They want to know more. Exactly. They want to know what you mean about leadership projection. So they will ask you another question. Alternatively, if they ask you what you spoke about or wrote about and your single sentence summary was, I help senior executives express their leadership in more effective ways so that they are able to drive consistently achievable bottom line results to all key stakeholders. (laughs) Do they want to know anything more about that? Not a chance. No, they want to flee from you. Now, if you have a short, snappy, compelling single sentence summary, they're going to launch into a conversation with you. And that conversation, which you are very comfortable having, will fulfill all three of your goals when talking to a civilian. You will be interesting, you will plant a seed of your brand in their head, and you will have a conversation that will qualify them as a potential prospect or not. But most importantly, you will have had a win-win interaction with another professional person. And when you multiply that, Kate, by all the times we get into such interactions... You will speak with more confidence and uncover more opportunities. But you you want to know what the best thing about all this is, Kate? What's that? It costs nothing. A compelling single-sentence summary takes time to develop, but not financial investment. It can become the core of your marketing plan. Without it, you're just a word factory churning out long blurbs no one wants to hear. Don't be that speaker. But be the speaker with the interesting single-sentence summary that everyone wants to keep talking to. Well, Brian, I got to say, this was worth waiting 10 months for. Thank you for finally being on VOE. But we still need to take care of my door. No worries. John is totally going to pay for that. I have a feeling I'm going to really be gig hunting now. Hey, thanks to all of you for your support through Voices of Experience. What an honor. Back to hunting.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.